Well, this morning we are beginning a new five-week series on Sabbath rest. We've been looking forward to this for quite some time. We're, we're calling this series The Beauty of Sabbath, The Beauty of Sabbath, not because Sabbath is somehow visually appealing, of course, that doesn't even make sense, and not even because Sabbath is immediately uh, productive or immediately enjoyable in some, uh, an obvious way. We're calling it that because we believe that with the implementation of this practice over the course of our lives, life becomes more beautiful. We believe that with the implementation of this practice over the course of our lives, we become more whole in a few distinct ways, and that is what we want to explore over the coming month. How Sabbath keeping will bring beauty into our relationships. It brings beauty into how we relate to God, how we understand and relate to ourselves, our relationships with other people, and our relationship with the world around us. And so I want to begin today by thinking for a moment about our day of worship that we set aside to focus our thoughts on building community and focus our thoughts on building and pouring into our spirit. And I understand, of course, that Sunday is not the Sabbath in the Jewish tradition, but in popular Christian culture, Sunday has been understood in a similar light historically. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember blue laws. Anybody? You can raise your hand, although that is going to give away your age, so I don't know if you want to do that. Some of you do remember blue laws, which were also referred to as Sunday laws, which were devised in some way to prohibit or in some cases simply to restrict certain commercial activities from taking place on Sunday. I am too young. I say that with a little bit of pride. I am too young to really have experienced much of this. Uh, blue laws, more or less, by the time I was into adolescence, were a thing of the past. Um, although I have heard that in some states it is still illegal to purchase an automobile on Sundays, which seems pretty arbitrary to me and strange, but... And then there are, uh, of course, several states that still have various restrictions when it comes to purchasing something like alcohol on a Sunday. So there is a little bit of hangover from, pardon the, <laughs> pardon the pun, but there is a little bit of hangover of, from those blue laws of the past, but at this point they are pretty much relics. Perhaps for some of you, the closest you have come to experiencing something like this is that Sunday craving you get for a certain chicken sandwich. Anybody? Yes. I don't even really like that chicken sandwich all that much, but on Sundays, I occasionally get a craving for it, I think because what you can't have, you want. So while I missed out on a lot of those laws growing up, Sabbath rest as a principle was still an important part of my family. Allow me to give you a brief window into Sundays in the Thomas house when I was growing up. It obviously started with church. We attended Sunday school at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning, followed by a corporate worship gathering that lasted until 12 or later, so that's 
three hours right there out of your day. And then we were back at church by 6 p.m. for, amen. Steve is really lobbying that we implement this again. I was back at church by 6 p.m. for another corporate worship gathering. Now, the six hours between those corporate times of worship and community in our house, there were certain restrictions at play. First of all, it always included a nap right after lunch. We would finish lunch. Everybody would go to their rooms, take a nap. Amen. Now, after the nap, I could go outside and play. I could play with my friends, play basketball in the street. Uh, I could do pretty much anything I wanted to that was legal outside when I was a kid. But there were things that I wasn't allowed to do. I couldn't go to the mall. I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't play organized sports. So I could play basketball in the street or in my driveway, but I couldn't participate in school athletics, so, which led to some strange and uncomfortable conversations with my coach when he would schedule practice for Sunday afternoon, and I would have to explain, look, I really want to run wind sprints today, but I can't. I'm not allowed to go. Although I do remember one of my older brothers who was a much better athlete than I ever was, and he played on some of those club sports teams that would travel, similar to an AAU type of basketball team. And they would travel, and all of their games were on Sundays. And for some reason, my dad allowed him to go on those trips. But the caveat, the requirement for him to participate in that was that he had to go to church in whatever random city they were in. And so my brother tells stories of their charter bus pulling up in front of a random church in a random city, one kid getting off the bus, walking into church, and then the bus waiting in the parking lot to take him back to the hotel, which is pretty strange. But all of that to say, while I'm not Jewish, and blue laws were more or less a thing of the past during my childhood, Sabbath, as a spiritual practice, was still very important in my family. But, perhaps like some of you, over the course of my life, this really important spiritual practice, I've noticed that it has become much less vital in my own life. Unintentionally, I think, but it has become much less important as I admittedly have been discipled into the life of hurry. I have been discipled into the life of constant busyness and exhaustion. And I want to argue, really throughout the course of this series, that constant busyness or constant hurry is simply not how we were created to live. In fact, there is a much more sustainable way of life that is offered to us by our tradition that goes back to the very beginning. The creation story told at the beginning of our scriptures sort of bakes rest right into the life of faith. So let's back up all the way to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We're actually going to be reading in chapter 2, but I think it's appropriate if we 
provide a synopsis of what occurs in the preceding chapter. But I guess before we even provide that overview of chapter one, I think it's necessary that we begin with the realization or the understanding that when we come to the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, we are not reading a science textbook. We are not reading a science textbook, and so we aren't attempting to answer scientific questions simply because that is not what this text is addressing. At least I don't think. I, I am of the opinion that the beginning of Genesis is a theological treatise. It is a theological piece of literature that is making largely theological claims. Genesis does make claims about the world we live in, but really even those claims about our world are pointing our attention to the God who creates. That is where our focus is, and that's exactly what happens throughout the first chapter of Genesis, the introduction to our sacred text. We are told that in the beginning, God creates. In the beginning, the God who is eternally existent, without cause or source, the God in whom we find being itself, God creates. And God creates out of nothing, speaking everything that we know and see into existence, into being. Now, how all of that occurs, in my opinion, is not the issue at stake. The, the processes that were employed in creation or the exact time frame in which all of this takes place, those might be interesting conversations to have. Those might be fun to think about, but I don't think that is what we focus on in the first few chapters of Genesis. What we are really interested in taking away from the creation account is the simple fact that God creates. God brings order out of chaos and begins to provide some structure to everything that was. And the poetic retelling of that creation event in Genesis chapter 1 follows this consistent pattern or structure. There are six workdays, and I use the air quotes intentionally because, again, what, what Workdays doesn't necessarily have to mean what we know to be 24-hour days. Workdays doesn't necessarily have to be what we know to be an eight-hour workday. There are these six workdays in this text that follow a consistent, consistent pattern where we see God speaks. He says, for instance, on day one, let there be light. And what he speaks comes into being, God speaks, let there be light. He sees that it is good, and then there is evening and morning on the first day, and we follow that pattern throughout. Let there be an expanse that separates the waters from the heavens, and let there be land and vegetation that sprouts from that land, and lights in the sky, and living creatures of all kinds that roam the earth, and then finally, the sixth day, let there be human beings made in the image of God and given the task of subduing and caring for creation. And then chapter 1 comes to an end. But that's not the end of the creation story. Because in the poetic structure of this creation story, there is still a seventh day that we are waiting on. And that seventh day is the conclusion 
the culmination of everything that has come before. And what is the culmination of this creation story? What is everything building towards? Well, it's not even building towards all the natural wonders that we see in the world or that the creation of humanity isn't even the conclusion, but it ends actually at the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 1, we read this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the climax, the culmination of this creation story is what? It is divine rest. God stops. God ceases activity and rests on the seventh day. Now, what could that mean, that the God that we worship as all-powerful is in need of some rest? Is it as though God is tuckered out from the activities of the day and needs to go take a nap? I don't think that is what we are getting in this story, but rather the point, or at least one of the points I think that is being made is that Sabbath, although it is not yet called that. We don't find that concept emerge explicitly until later in the story in the book of Exodus, but Sabbath rest is built into the creation account, and Sabbath rest in the creation account becomes the basis for the requirement of Sabbath that is later given to the Israelites to follow. And so this becomes an incredibly significant feature of the creation story in our Bible from a literary perspective for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it is quite unique. Now, we understand that the Judeo-Christian faith isn't the only religion with the creation story. Furthermore, our creation story isn't altogether unique. In fact, there are a lot of similarities between our creation story and the creation stories that are told in other ancient texts. Other religious texts have creation stories. They even have, some of them have catastrophic flood stories similar to the one we find in the book of Genesis. So there are similarities between these stories, but there are also some significant differences. And this here on the seventh day is one of those big differences. Sabbath rest, built into the creation account, is unique in our creation story. It's the only creation, ancient creation story that I'm familiar with that includes a day of rest. One of the things we draw from that, I think, is that this is not an afterthought for the God of the Bible. This is not a detail that was added later as an addendum to this creation account. No, this is critical from the beginning of the story that is being told in our scriptures. Rest is a vital part of how we have been created to function. I like the point that A.J. Svoboda makes in his book, Subversive Sabbath, about the creation story. He argues that in that story, these prototypical figures, Adam and Eve, They begin their existence in the story with what? A day of rest. 
Adam and Eve created, humanity created on the sixth day. In the story, the next day is what? It's not toil. It's not work. It's not wearing yourself out. It is simply being. Simply being and enjoying the creator, enjoying the creation they had been blessed to be a part of. I think that is a significant detail. Now we're going to fast forward. We started in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to jump all the way to Exodus chapter 20. Before we get there, though, about a month ago, I was talking on the phone with a friend of mine who has in many ways become a mentor of mine. We were spending some time just catching up, and I was sharing with him about the short weekend vacation Nanette and I recently took to Bentonville, and I was sharing with him how one of the lessons that Nanette and I were reminded of during that trip and one of the ongoing conversations we had was about a, a great temptation for us, actually, and she's not here, so I feel the freedom to share this great temptation in our relationship. But we were talking about how the, the, the fact that it is very easy for us with all of our various responsibilities at work, our responsibilities at home, it is easy for us to go about life for a decent amount of time without having a single meaningful, intentional, and uninterrupted conversation. We can go weeks without sitting down and having that uninterrupted time together, which obviously is the backbone of any relationship. I was sharing this with one of my mentors, and he noted the fact that he sees the exact same thing taking place in his business where his employees will be going about their business for weeks or months according to these systems that they have in place that they've intentionally put there to be followed because they know they lead to good results. And they'll go about business for months and then one day wake up and discover we're not doing any of that stuff that helped us get to this place. Why did we disregard that? And nobody knows the answer didn't seem important at the time or seemed like a waste of time, so we just sort of pushed it off to the back burner. And I think this is a great temptation for all of us probably in many areas of our lives, in self-care, in nurturing our relationships with other people. You know, I think the, the practice of remembering to keep the important things a priority, I think that is what enables healthy relationships. But I also want to argue that that is what enables healthy spirituality as well. If we could only remember to keep the important things, the things that we know lead to health, if we could keep them a priority. So I mentioned we're fast-forwarding. We started in Genesis 1 and 2. We're jumping to Exodus chapter 20 as the people of Israel have been delivered from Egyptian slavery and now they're wandering in the wilderness and trying to figure out what life is now going to look like now that they are free. And a part of that experience and a part of that season in the life of Israel was the reception of the law. And right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, the law that is given to Moses, the Ten Commandments are sort of representative of that law, right in the middle of the law given at Mount Sinai. These are the big ones, right? The Ten Commandments, the commandments that form the foundation of life within Judaism, and right in the middle of that, we find the command to remember. Remember. Remember what? Well, we read it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Israel in the wilderness, trying to figure out what life is going to be look what life is going to look like now that they are free from oppression. And one of the stipulations is this: remember the Sabbath day. You labor for six days, you work hard for six days, but then you stop. You rest. Sabbath isn't about getting out of work. Sabbath isn't about neglecting our responsibilities. We're going to be talking more about this later in the series as we talk about the importance of work. But I think maybe for many of us that Sabbath rest can be quite difficult because we simply don't want people to think we are lazy. Has anybody experienced that? Or we don't want people to think that we aren't serious about our work. And so I have to be thinking about work at all times. Or I have to be actively engaged in my work or at least open to the possibility of jumping into work at any moment, which is made possible, of course, by these devices that connect us to everybody in the world in an instant. I think our faith tradition would tell us that is not a sustainable way to live. In giving the law to Israel, God says, take care to remember the Sabbath day. You work for six days and you rest. This is a big deal. And in this law, the appeal is made back to the creation account. God's creative activity is your model. You work for six days and then you rest. Now, of all of the commandments that we find in the Ten Commandments, this is the one that we kind of give others a pass on. It's probably the one that we hope to receive a pass from others on if we haven't completely disregarded it altogether. I heard one pastor note that he said, look, if I, if I committed adultery as a pastor, I'd probably be fired, right? Probably with good cause. If I was caught in these webs of lies or in a scheme to steal money or if I was caught in some overt action of idolatrous behavior or idolatrous worship, I'd lose my job. Go through those Ten Commandments. If I participated in those actions, I would, and maybe that's hyperbolic, maybe some of them there, there wouldn't be an immediate termination of employment, but the point is if I engaged in any of those behaviors, I would be fired as a pastor. If, however, I didn't observe the Sabbath, I might receive a raise. Or I might be praised for my work ethic or my commitment to the cause. This is the one commandment that we can brag about not following. And not only is it completely acceptable, but maybe even wins us some admiration. I'm just so busy. 
got all of these things to do, and they're important things. Maybe they are even kingdom-related things, and I've got to take care of them. Don't have time to rest. So one of the questions, this is the introduction to the rest of the series, one of the questions I want us to be thinking about over the next month is, why do I find it so difficult to engage in this practice? It was important in my upbringing, and I've and this is just a little bit of honesty for me. I've more or less, over the years, disregarded it. Pushed it to the back burner. Really important in my upbringing, and now it's just kind of an afterthought for me. Why do I find it so difficult to implement this practice? And then the second question, is it possible that we can reframe this in a way that makes Sabbath not a matter of duty, but a life-giving discipline that will bring health? As we've seen, this is built into the very fabric of the story our scriptures are telling. We, we see it at the very beginning in the creation story. And then as we fast forwarded to the beginning of Israel's life out of slavery, it was essential to their identity. It was a non-negotiable in Jewish law. We can even look forward to the life of Jesus. Although Jesus radically redefines some of the common understandings of Sabbath observance of his day. I, I think it's appropriate that we would assume that Jesus, as a serious Jew, observed and practiced Sabbath. So if this is such an important part of our faith and, and has been for a really long time, why don't we do it? Why do we find it so difficult to rest? Why is this one just a suggestion that we'll get to if we, if we have time? We'll get to if it's convenient. Now, to be fair, and I want to be upfront with you about this from the very beginning, none of this is intended to be a guilt trip because if it is, it's a guilt trip for myself as well because this is really challenging for me. I have a hard time with it, and more times than not, I fail to rest and simply enjoy and recognize the gift of existence and the gift of our God's presence. So this is not intended to be a guilt trip or to be a suggestion that we need to become legalistic about keeping Sabbath, that we need to delineate exactly what we can and can't do and what activities are acceptable, what activities aren't acceptable. No, we, we understand as followers of Jesus that we live in the grace of God that we are no, no longer under the law, but is it possible that we can still keep the principles of the law without being in bondage to it? So, so we are under the grace of God, not under the law. We understand that, but what I want to suggest throughout this series is that the grace of God is discovered more fully through something like the routine spiritual practice of Sabbath-keeping. This may be anecdotal, I'm not sure, but I've heard on several different occasions that there was a Jewish tradition at various points throughout history when families would give their young children a spoonful of honey at the beginning of the Sabbath day in order to remind them that what follows in this Sabbath day of rest is sweet. This is not intended to be burdensome. It's not intended to choke out life. No, it's intended to help us open up to life more fully, to experience the beauty of life, to slow down 
long enough to see all of that and enter into that joy. That's what this is about. This isn't about additional rules or regulations that have to be followed in order to be holy or in order for us to try to make God happy. This is about the sweetness of rest that God has designed for us and through which we have been designed to function properly. Dr. Matthew Sleeth, who is a, an author that writes a lot about a Christian perspective on the environment and creation care. I actually think he may have recently presented at Evangel at a conference. Uh, I wasn't able to attend it. Maybe some of you heard his presentation. But he wrote a book called 24-6, which you see what that play on words is suggesting, 24-6. And in that book, he suggests that in regard to the Sabbath, when we keep it, when we keep Sabbath, all the Ten Commandments come to pass because relationships are strengthened when we make time for them. So, so we can think about the law, which is intended to strengthen our relationship with God and our relationship to other people and the creation that we interact with. If we are keeping Sabbath, we are carving out time to pour into those relationships, and those relationships are strengthened. And by and large, this is what we are going to explore over the next four weeks. The life-giving effect that routine Sabbath rest will have on our relationship with God, how we relate to ourselves, our relationships with other people, and how we interact and care for God's creation. The beauty of the Sabbath. That's what we're calling this series. I also wanted to mention that there are several resources that I have personally been immersed in really since this past spring in preparation for this month. And I wanted to share those with you, number one, so that you know where I'm coming from, where a lot of this material is being drawn from, and some of the works that have greatly influenced or are influencing some of my perspectives on Sabbath rest. But then also in case you are interested in diving deeper into this, if you're interested in further study on some of these issues, four resources that I have been immersed in. Number one, Brueggemann's work in Sabbath as Resistance. Number two, A.J. Svoboda. I guess I should have listed those on, on the PowerPoint. We'll post those on our Facebook so that you don't have to take notes. Um, A.J. Svoboda's work in Subver Subversive Sabbath. A lady named Marva Dawn wrote a book called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, which is W-H-O-L-L-Y. And then, of course, probably the classic work on this subject, uh, simply called The Sabbath by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, much of what I want to share in the coming month comes from these various resources, if you're interested in further study. But again, in all of this, what we are working towards is the beauty of Sabbath. The beauty of Sabbath. The simple fact that Sabbath rest as a spiritual practice begins to bring beauty into every area of our lives. This is not just another set of rules that we are trying to implement and inevitably failing to keep, but this is a gift. Sabbath rest is a gift to us. Kevin, if you all want to come up. This is not a gift that comes easily. It's a gift, but it's not a gift that comes without great sacrifice. It will actually require a lot of sacrifice, especially when we have been thoroughly discipled into a life of hurry. 
it will require a lot of discipline, a lot of sacrifice, but it is a gift, if we can embrace it, that opens us up to so much beauty. We're going to return to these ideas and develop them further in the next several weeks, and we will also seek to answer some practical questions in regard to how we might faithfully implement some of these principles of rest when everything that we know is pushing us in the opposite direction. So would you stand this morning as we celebrate our Creator, as we celebrate the gift of life that He has blessed us with, our Celebration this morning with Maeve was a part of that celebration of the gift of life. We celebrate God, all of the blessings we have been given, especially the gift of redemption that we find in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what we are going to celebrate in the next few moments as we come to the table. I know we have quite a few visitors. We invite you to participate. We invite you to come share in the body and blood of Christ with us. If you're new or visiting, we practice an open table, you are invited. The only requirement really is that you understand your need. I think by coming, that is a recognition of your need for the body and blood of Jesus. So the invitation every week over this five-week series is going to be very simple. It's going to be the same, and it is simply this. Come and rest. Come and rest.